Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. You are listening to Linux in the Hampshire. LHS is a podcast about Linux, open source, and amateur radio for everyone. Now here are your hosts, Russ, K5TUX, Cheryl, W5MOO, and Bill, NE4RD. Well, hello everybody and welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 320 of Linux in the Ham Shack. This is our second episode for the brand new decade, 2020. And this will be a short topic episode. So we'll talk about Linuxy things and open source things and ham radio things and stuff that puts it all together in our Linux in the Ham Shack segment. And then we'll go on our merry way. And the next time you tune in, it'll be the weekender. It'll be the 40th installment of the weekender. So we've done, wow. yeah, quite a few of those. But anyway, back to current episode number 320. We have the usual cast of characters for you tonight. I'm Russ K5TUX. I'm Cheryl W5MOO. And I'm Bill NE4RD. And thanks to Bill, who uh, gave me a swift kick in the ass earlier today. We're actually recording tonight. <laughs> I figured things were going south in a hurry, and then all of a sudden I see that there's a lot of prep that's been done, and guess what? We're actually going to pull a show together. Woo. So let's do it. I'll go ahead and read the first story. I pulled this one out because uh, if no one doesn't already know, uh, there was a fairly sizable and damaging earthquake in Puerto Rico a few days ago, and that, of course, leads to response from amateur radio emergency services and hams in general and in this case the arrl who is sending equipment down to puerto rico to help out in the relief effort section manager oscar resto kp4rf reports that several amateur radio emergency services volunteers have been deployed to the earthquake ravaged regions of the island at the request of the american red cross a station has also been activated at the red cross headquarters in the capital of san juan which is not in the earthquake zone Aftershocks continue on the island. A magnitude 5.9 tremor struck over the weekend. The stations are operating as a backbone in case a new or stronger earthquake hits the region, uh, Resto explained. He also continues, HF equipment is stored in Pelican cases for protection from a larger catastrophic event if communications fail. Uh, power has been reestablished to more than 90% of Puerto Rico and water services operational in most places. ARRL is shipping six VHF slash UHF base repeater antennas and six 50-foot rolls of LMR 400 coax through the Ham Aid Fund. A 6.4 magnitude earthquake struck the southwestern part of Puerto Rico on the 7th of January, fast on the heels of a magnitude 5.8 tremor the day before. Uh, Resto told the ARRL last week that the earthquake disaster has definitely been a setback for the U.S. territory as it continues its long recovery from severe hurricane damage back in 2017. So uh, ham radio operators and lots of emergency services folks down in Puerto Rico trying to help out, get them back on their feet uh, after a couple of sequential disasters. So we hope everything's going well for them. And thanks for everybody who's spending some time, effort, and money to get Puerto Rico back on their feet. So with that said, let's move on to some more amateur radio topics. Anyone want to do this one? (laughs) 
I can do this one. I, I put this one in here, so I'll do it. <laughs> Someone's going to start reading after this, though. I'll do the next Not one. Not me. Okay, you'll do the next one. Not you? Not me. I might just make you do it, then. I'm doing my recipe right now. Thank you. <laughs> You're supposed to have done that hours ago. I was busy. <laughs> All right. Uh, so in our amateur radio topics, we have, interestingly enough, something that doesn't really sound like amateur radio, but it is amateur radio related. What good is Bitcoin if the Internet fails? Uh, the Internet isn't invincible. Governments the world over are restricting access to the World Wide Web. Then there are man-made disasters. And this article cites missile strikes. I don't know how many of those have taken out the Internet lately, but I guess <laughs> it could happen, I suppose. Um, and natural disasters such as wildfires in California and Australia or other scenarios that limit access to electricity, as well as the prohibitive cost of Internet use in many parts of the world, lack of security, and, of course, Internet surveillance. You can't buy, send, or steal Bitcoin if the Internet is down. I like how they reference stealing Bitcoin. <laughs> um, that's true. If you don't have the electronic means to steal it, you can't steal it. Uh, or can you? There are other methods for getting transaction data through. Using amateur radio, for example, users can transmit low-bandwidth transaction data around the world on very little power. Satellite phones, such as Iridium Go, allow users to send and receive low-bandwidth data anywhere in the world. And if all else fails, there's OpenDime, a small USB stick that allows you to physically spend Bitcoin, just like a dollar bill, and pass it along multiple times. Now, the article, and I'm quoting myself now, also mentions uh, setting up a single-user satellite station with SDR technology as another method of transmitting and receiving digital currency in the case of an Internet outage. So if you want to check that out, the full article is at Decrypt, an online uh, digital security magazine. And a link to that, of course, will be in the show notes. All right, yeehaw. Bill. Oh, yeehaw. Yeah, yeehaw. <laughs> <laughs> so you get your Bitcoin on through your amateur radio. Yeah, I still don't understand Bitcoin, but okay. No one understands Bitcoin. That's why it's going to explode someday. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> it's going to be worth billions, trillions, gazillions. Like, I think it's already been worth billions. Now it's worth thousands. Thousands, yeah. That's it. <laughs> or tens. Or yeah. Like, so. All right, let's talk uh, about some awards. Yeah, so we have some uh, nominations solicited for six ARRL awards. The ARRL is inviting nominations for awards that recognize educational and technological pursuits in amateur radio. Nominations are also open for the league's premier award to honor a young licensee. Uh, the awards are uh, the Hiram Percy Maxim Award, which recognizes an amateur, a radio amateur, an ARRL member younger than the age of 21 who accomplishes, whose accomplishments and contributions are of the most exemplary nature within the framework of amateur radio activities. Nominations for this award are made through the ARRL section managers who will forward nominations to the ARRL headquarters. The deadline is March 31st, 2020. Uh, the ARRL Herb S. Breyer Instructor of the Year Award honors the a an ARRL volunteer, amateur radio instructor, or ARRL professional classroom teacher who uses creative instructional approaches, approaches and reflects the highest values of the amateur radio community. Uh, the award highlights uh, quality of and commitment to licensing instruction. Nominations are due by March 16th. The ARRL Microwave Development Award pays tribute to the radio amateur or group of radio amateurs who contributed to the development of amateur radio microwave bands. The nomination deadline is March 31st. The ARRL Technical Service Award recognizes an individual radio group 
or a group of radio amateurs who provide amateur radio technical assistance or training. Uh, the nomination for that is March 31st. Um, I was thinking about that one. You know, it could could nominate like maybe a podcast too there. <laughs> well, that's uh, true. I, <clears throat> I can't imagine what podcast would do that. But anyway, um, the AWRL Technical Innovation Award is conferred to on an individual radio amateur or group of radio amateurs who develop and apply new te- ne- technical ideas or techniques in amateur radio. I think the last one was... Uh, uh, wasn't that for the FT8 or something like that or uh, something yeah. like that? Yes. Yeah, I went to I went to uh, the team over there at the the JT team. Um, that was a uh, nomination for the deadline is March 31st for that. And the Knight Distinguished Service Award recognizes an exceptional contributions by a section manager to the health and vitality of the AWRL. The nomination deadline for that is April 30th, 2020. And of course, you can find more information on those at the AWRL. Cool. To jump back a story about um. MCOM in the chat room, Darren, who's uh, an Aussie ham, obviously, says, uh, through all of the bushfire reports from Eastern Australia, I've not heard anything about hams helping, even though there have been lots of complaints about no communication. So what's wrong with uh, what's what's the the equivalent of the ARRL in Australia? The WIA, isn't it? The or? WIA, that's right. Somebody needs to kick them in the ass. <laughs> I, know we, I know we've been sending firefighters over there because i know they just did a story about some montana guys that went over yeah well the uh the aries groups and i assume they have aries down there they need to uh get stuff together although i i mean australia is a big com- country with a lot of empty space so i don't know I, and I, they showed i remember we saw that map the other night of yeah, how big like the three quarters were. of the united states yeah it was like an area the size of three quarters of the u.s and that's like incredible <laughs> i mean <laughs> cannot be- imagine anything as large as that being on fire but uh it's craziness so hopefully they'll get that under control and ham radio operators in australia if you're listening to this help <laughs> you know do do what you gotta do, do. something yeah yeah that's that's what you're there for not not just to do ft8 and get your worked all states or whatever <laughs> <laughs> worked all provinces or yeah whatever. worked all yeah because there's what seven down there or something something like that yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should be able to do that in an hour. Um, uh, 80 meter FT8, probably. <laughs> well, assuming that, you know, not every ham station's on fire at this point. Yeah, but, I was going to say, there could, there could be some places on fire, though. Yeah. So, all right. Anyway, you want to read about whales? <laughs> wow, that was uh, enthusiastic. No, I, I have. One minute to get the corporate. All right, I'll read about the whales, too. Oh, uh, okay. well, no, I can read about the whales. Okay. Since you right. put it in there. Yeah, I'll put it in there. I, I, I'll read about whales. You can wear, uh, read about Huawei. Huawei. Yeah. Anyway. Like an whales. Whales with emphasis on the H. Whales. Uh, why scientists are counting whales from space. Scientists from the New England Aquarium. I used to go to the New England Aquarium all the time. So this is kind of cool for me. Uh, and the Massachusetts-based engineering firm Draper are teaming up to save the whales. The whales. Uh, the researchers are weaving together a myriad of data in order to create a probability map of where whales might travel to and why. Knowing where whales go can help scientists better understand the environmental conditions that most impact the various species. In order to track these whales, the team plans to tap reliable sources of sonar, radar, and satellite data to help keep a watchful eye on our planet's largest mammals. Eventually, the team hopes to input this data collected from European Space Agency satellites to amateur operators. 
amateur radio operators. Why did I leave that word out? Anyway, into an algorithm that will process the data and then track whales' movements. Whales are a critical component of the ocean ecosystem, working hard to ensure that the ocean food chain is balanced, but they're also vital in the fight against climate change. Whales are considered to be carbon sinks, like swimming trees, which soak up carbon in the fat stored in their bodies, and when they die and sink to the bottom of the ocean, all of that carbon, which would otherwise be released into the atmosphere, sinks with them. I had never heard anything like that before today. So, <laughs> <laughs> But it's interesting. And this comes from popular science, so... That still exists. <laughs> apparently so. And I'm, I'm going to go back and say this. It's still very hard to find things to talk about in the amateur radio world that the Southgate Amateur Radio Club does not already have on their news feed. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> well, these are interesting. I, I was uh, I was quite surprised by the, these selections. That's that's kind of cool. Yeah, it was, too. It's nice to see that amateur radio operators are involved in so many different things and things you would never really think of unless you read an article like this and find out that whales are swimming trees. So there you go. A link to the popular science article will, of course, be in the show notes. There you go. So moving on from our amateur radio topics, we're going to talk about some open source stuff. And Bill is going to mention Huawei. Huawei. The evil Huawei (laughs) unveils Open Euler. I guess that's what I'm going to call it. Uh, It's a CentOS-based Linux distribution. Huawei Huawei has uh, has released the source code for Open Euler, its distribution of Linux based on CentOS. The operating system was formally launched by Huawei back in September of 2019 in response to U.S. sanctions, which had briefly affected the company's access to Windows and Android operating systems. The source code has now been published to Git-T, the Chinese version of GitHub. Open Euler comprises uh, two organizations of, on Git-T, one for source code and one for package sources. The Open Euler organization was keen to highlight two particular packages, iSulad and Atune, among the Open Euler source code. iSulad is a lightweight gRPC service-based container runtime. Compared to Run C, iSulad is written in C, but all interfaces are compatible with OCI. Atune is a system software to optimize, to auto-optimize the system adaptively to multiple scenarios with uh, embedded AI engine. At the moment, the organization claims that there is there are more than 50 contributors and just under 600 commits. The Open Euler community has around 20 SIGs or project groups. I guess that's special interest groups. And uh, yeah, that, that came from Slashdot. Slash and, that's still around? Oh, okay. yeah. Of course that's still around. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll do the next one too, because this is one that I went to. All right. Uh, we had a, uh, we had a TensorFlow meetup. And, uh, if you're not familiar with what TensorFlow is, Google it. <laughs> it's from Google. <laughs> uh, it's a machine learning framework. And, uh, yeah. So my friend hosted a TensorFlow meetup here in Billings, uh, while some of us took the, took in the, uh, the opportunity for, uh, for drinking some beer and, and eating some pizza. There was some cool tools that you can play with online in your browser that can get you started with machine learning. Uh, I say take advantage of these and let your kids play with the tools as well and see what they can create. Then see how far you can take it with your Raspberry Pi and other electronic gadgets. And uh, one of the one of the sites you can go to is teachablemachine.withgoogle.com. And uh, yeah, I spelled that wrong. Goggle, Galga, Galga. Yeah. The Golgas. Go to the goggles. The Google Moth. Yeah. The Google Moth. And, uh, yeah, it's really cool. So you can, you can load it up and, uh, kind of create, uh, image, image learning stuff with your camera. 
and uh you can have it trigger all sorts of uh actions and stuff like that and and uh yeah we just played uh games with uh like facial recognition you know putting somebody's face in front of the camera and it would say their name and stuff like that and uh we had a couple of uh young people there as well that uh traveled with their parents and they had a lot of fun playing with that and doing some some random stuff with objects like pizza and and uh and drinks and coke cans and stuff like that with the uh, the camera and it was a lot of fun and uh, i'm not sure how much i really learned about it but uh it was still kind of cool to to play around with some of the tools that are already out there that you can you can kind of you know, do at home without being a coder whatsoever, which I, I think is, is always a great way to enter into a new technology is, is being able to kind of play with it ad hoc and, uh, and see what you can do. So definitely, uh, definitely take a look at that if you haven't and you've heard all about machine learning and just really don't know what it is. It's a great place to kind of start and, and look what, what is actually out there. All right. Very cool. I, I am sort of TensorFlow ignorant, but. There's a lot of stuff coming up in the world, especially in open source that has to do with AI and machine learning. And I know a lot of those projects are going to the open source so they get better input, you know, into development. So always cool when that happens. And of course, you know, Google, they, they sort of (laughs) steal from the open source world for their stuff too. So I guess they can give back, right? (laughs) They give back a lot. (laughs) They do give back a lot. Yes. All right. And then there's been a, the project has been around for a long time now, OpenStreetMap, which has been a great way to get mapping data into applications because they have an open API and everything. And Bill's going to tell us about how you can improve their data set. Yeah, I just ran across this today, and it's uh, make open source maps better by contributing to OpenStreetMap with using Street Complete. Street Complete is an Android app which finds wrong, incomplete, or extendable data in the user's vicinity. It lists them as easily answered questions, thereby allowing changes to be made directly on the site without having to use another editor. Data issues are are presented to the user as markers on the map. They can be solved by filling out a simple form to complete or correct the information. The user's answers are then processed and directly uploaded into the OSM database categorized by quest type and in the name of the user's OSM account. Since the app is meant to be used while out and about, it works offline and otherwise aims to be an economic, aims to be economic with data usage. The app is uh, aimed at users who do not know anything about OSM tagging schemes, but still want to contribute to open street map by surveying their neighborhood or other places. Because of the target group, the app only presents issues which are answerable very clearly by asking one simple question and which involve very few false positives. It is also useful for more experienced mappers who can skip creating notes and manually entering data. data. I found that over on a Reddit thread, of course. Yeah, I installed it on my phone just to take a quick, quick gander at it. And, uh, yeah, like the, the closest thing to me is, uh, we have like a little side street that sits in front of some people's houses, uh, that's off the main road. And it wanted a name for that little side street. <laughs> so, so it seemed pretty, uh, simple and clear. So if you haven't, uh, haven't checked it out, it, uh, looks pretty good. I mean, I wouldn't use it as a, uh, as a mapping app per se. Uh, I saw some comments in the, uh, in the reviews that said some of the mapping data is out of, uh, out of date, but I think that's been the argument. You know, all along with OpenStreetMap because it does, it is slightly delayed, especially in areas that have, you know, a lot of growth and, and new streets being dropped in there all the time. But it's a good opportunity for you to kind of give back to that community and help grow that project, uh, to have a more complete mapping system. Yeah, that's really cool. And I like how 
OpenStreetMap has kind of taken it upon themselves to do all of the legwork to create a mapping environment that's not encumbered by cost, uh, like Google's is. And Google's maps are getting more and more restrictive all the time. So OpenStreetMap is always a good um, alternative for developers. So anything we can do to make the data set better, we should do. I'm going to have to download that and see if there, I, I, I have to believe there is definitely stuff around here <laughs> that, that needs help. So that could be pretty cool. So moving on from that, we're going to go to the Linux in the Hamstack segment. And the first thing they have under there is Tushnak, which is Penguin in Czech, if you didn't already know that, um, has released a new stable release, 4.19. Tushnak is a multi-platform VHF and HF contest logger. It is executable on Linux and other Unix-type systems. Since V3, also, it's native under Microsoft Windows. Yeah. Android and Kindle. You can download Tusnock from tusnock.nagano.cz slash download.php. That link, of course, will be in the show notes. And HF support is somewhat limited because you're not QRV. Who cares? <laughs> the author. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the author. Um, no, nah, it's okay. Um, we've reviewed Tusnock before. We should probably take another look at it sometime and see how it's come up in the world. I, I have to imagine it's been two or three years or probably more actually since we really looked well, at it. I think it. me and you talked about it a few times when we were reviewing loggers. Well, we talk about all kinds of things. Yeah. So, yeah. Whether or not we did, went deep into it or not, I don't know. I know yeah. it has, has some pretty cool like little mapping features and stuff like that. And I think that's what we were looking at and yeah. trying to uncover and everything. And, uh, didn't quite get too far with it, but, uh, it, it definitely looks pretty, uh, pretty slick. It presents some graphical data inside a terminal window, which just which kind of was kind of awesome. So, um, feedback for the program is welcomed by the developers. Included in the 4.19 change log are things like an FSF address update, thanks to OK2JRQ, uh, a Work North America multipliers update by DF2ET. Uh, HTTP server refresh by DF2ET, K7FRI's locator map, thanks to G1OGY, uh, different EXC length, which I'm not sure what that is. Probably exchange. Yeah, different exchange length, thanks to DF2ET as well. Fixes for OpenBSD, so it actually works on BSD systems as well as Linux. It, it does say Unix type up above, but it didn't specify BSD until here. Uh, some fixes in the warnings. Uh, a macOS build, thanks to Vitali, UT4UAZ, um, and a building fix for FreeBSD 12.0. Optional exchange in Cabrillo format, thanks to DF2ET. And a fix to the broken MSVCR120.dll, thanks to OK1CDJ and OK5ZS. And a link to Tusnock, where you can download that and try it if you like, is of course in the show notes. And I read that one because this next one is sort of bill centric. He's going to talk yes. about contesting <laughs> using CQR log. Yeah, I, uh, I, I finally, uh, I finally uh, got back onto the uh, contesting train this weekend. Not, not hardcore because um, I just didn't have time. I was <laughs> doing projects around the house, so I sneak out to the garage for like a couple minutes at a time, and I decided to work the uh, NAQP CW contest this weekend. And, uh, I was like, well, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna see what CQR log can do. And of course it does have a, a contest mode that you can bring the logger into, which is not great. 
um, I haven't exported my log via Carrillo yet. I'm, I'm assuming that's going to work and I'm going to have to probably edit the files somewhat, uh, to put all my stuff in there, uh, for my exchange. But I was able to, you know, easily, uh, I had it hooked up to the keyer and everything else and, uh, set up all my, uh, keyboard, uh, macros for, uh, you know, executing, uh, some CW through the, uh, wind keyer. And that worked flawlessly. I was able to adjust the speed on the fly uh, for people that, you know, it was either the low signal wasn't copying me too well. So I slowed it down a little bit so they can get everything or uh, just people operating, you know, slow speeds. Um, and all that was, was very functional. The, uh, the logger gives you a nice little quick uh, entry window with just the call sign and some basic stuff. It'll go ahead and auto increment numbers for you. If you're sending a number and receiving a number, so you can actually plop that into a different field. It also has a free text field where you can put in the exchange information, which of course for the NAQP was just a uh, name and, uh, name and state. So that worked out pretty well or province for, uh, for the amateurs up north there. And, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it wasn't, uh, as good as using, uh, you know, a specific contest logger, but I was, uh, I was pleasantly surprised it didn't totally annoy me. <laughs> um, so yeah, it looks like CQR log can do contesting. Um, if I was probably a little bit more serious, I probably would have been frustrated with it. I wasn't sure like how it would handle duping. I didn't even try entering the same call twice, whether they would do that uh, type comparison. And uh, I probably should just to test it out, but I'm probably going to look at it a little bit deeper and uh, I'm going to probably do the, uh, the NAQP single sideband this weekend and get a little bit more of a feel for it and see how it operates with that. Hopefully I'll have a little bit more time to put into it, but uh, we'll see. <laughs> All right, cool. Interesting to see that. I mean, you could obviously use any kind of logger for contest logging, but contest logging loggers have certain features that make them easier to use, especially dupe checking. Of course, that's the big one. And the other one is actual scoring. Yeah, it's, automatic it's, scoring and everything else. Yeah, yeah. scoring and, and dupe checking are probably the biggest features of a contest logger, plus the ease of entering your uh, call sign and exchange fields. Um, without a lot of extraneous, uh, moving about or, or data entry. Yeah. Um, it knows what to expect. Like you can't, can't put in like a wrong type section name, but you know, with this being a free text field, I could type in whatever and you know, it could be wrong or formatted wrong. I could have put the state right. first or something like that. So, so yeah, I mean, it leaves a lot to be desired for that, that aspect of it. But, uh, I, like I say, I'm going to give it another whirl this weekend and, and see if it, uh, see if it can, uh, accommodate some of those extra things. And uh, I'll, I'll fully flush out the rest of the features. All right. Very cool. And uh, I guess we can't let January go by without mentioning Grid Tracker at least once or twice, um, since we've kind of been talking about that a lot. But the reason we've been talking about it a lot is because we had a couple of deep dive episodes into it. And following that, there has been a ton of development in the Grid Tracker application. This is all new stuff that's not included in those deep dives because. Uh, Steve and zero TTL tag is continuously like on a daily basis, pushing out new stuff in this thing. So it's, it's almost crazy, but some of the things that he's added lately are callable roster alerts to external script processing. In other words, you can take any new or unconfirmed hits to come into the callable roster and they're pushed out to a JSON file that can be acted upon by a script in pretty much any language to do something useful 
like to log it externally or to push it to an SMS service so you can get your alerts via your cell phone or anything that you can do with an external script, which is pretty powerful and also kind of broken. I'm working with him right now to get this resolved. <laughs> uh, so hopefully that will get uh, taken care of here in the next day or two. Uh, he's also added at a user request the ability to only search in the callable roster for a single DXCC entity if you're trying to find something very specific. Uh, in the case of the, the, the user in question, they were looking for only Japan, so you can now do that. Uh, he added a toggle called Lookup Call Sign on TX which will bring up a call sign lookup anytime you double-click on something in the callable roster and or start transmitting with them so that you know exactly all the information about that call sign automatically when you click. I don't remember if uh, in the previous release the thing about zooming to your QSO was in there, but now there's a feature where when you double-click on a user and your QSO starts, it will actually zoom the map to the extents of both ends of the QSO. So you can see your side and the calling station side uh, on the map, no matter where it is. And then once that QSO is over, it will return to the state your map was in before the QSO started. So that's pretty cool. Uh, At my behest, at my request, there is now the ability to load multiple local data files, uh, ADI files at startup, and also now a button so that you can load ADI files from anywhere on the file system anytime you wish, uh, because I needed that because I was getting external log data from a different application. Uh, there's also Clublog OQRS participation database in the uh, application now, which I don't even know what that is because I don't really use Clublog, but someone who does probably does. Um, he created a groups.io support uh, group called grid tracker or grid tracker app so that if you have questions you need to have answered and you're not on discord or whatever then you can get them answered in groups.io now he added lightning strike detection you can either see that globally or locally if you're doing it locally it will show you any lightning strike and send you an alert if lightning strikes within 0.5 degrees latitude or longitude from your location which is roughly 30 miles in any direction so if you want to make sure you don't get your lightning or your uh, antenna blown up, you know, you'll be alerted to that ahead of time. Um, you can now change the QSO log event sound. I believe it was, there was a default for that. It was just like a little ping. You can now make it any sound you wish or turn it off. Uh, he has also changed the mouse over for the grid tracker flag on the map. So if you mouse over another user, it will include information on distance and direction from your QTH and also show you if it's worked or confirmed that you have worked at Grid Tracker Station. Uh, he's also made it so that uh, in the right-hand column, you will always be able to see your current mode and band up at the top, but anytime you switch your mode and band, that will actually be included in the text waterfall now, so you'll also see that. And lots of other stuff has been included too and fixed since the last time he's actually released. Um, I think he's going to getting ready to push out a release in the next week or so with all this other stuff that he's been working on in the past few days. So 
there is no lack of development and advancement in the grid tracker world. So if this is something that interests you, especially after listening to our deep dives, feel free to check it out. And of course, a link to grid tracker itself will be in the show notes. And I'll also include a link to the groups IO uh, grid tracker help group as well. <sighs> wow. Love Dr. Chuck. <laughs> so before we read the social media roundup, let's check the chat room and see if anybody has any comments or questions from the stories for tonight that we can maybe answer or espouse any commentary from the folks who are here with us tonight. Uh, we had Don KB2YSI. I know we had Don KC9ZMY earlier, but he might be in class, but we're going to mention him anyway because he's a good guy. Uh, we also have Darren, VK6EK. Thanks for listening to us tonight. We have Ted, WA0EIR. And we also have Logan, KE0SHV. So thanks to everybody who was listening to us tonight. We appreciate that. So we have completed all of our topics, and we're down to the social media roundup. So let's see who's supporting us this week. Okay. So for our Patreons, we have Rich Gordon. Hi, Rich. Andy Webster, Cubicle Nate, Darren King, David Jakeway, Donald Gover, Douglas Redder, Erno Castalis, Herb Garcia, John Spriggs, Peter Caffrey, Paul Griffith, Randolph Smith, Robert Pitts, Samuel Vines, Steve Metcalf, Steve Sainer, Stephen Harp, and William Heck, excuse me, William Heckelman. For subscriptions, we have Randolph Smith, Robert Halliday, James Lewis, Fred Cole, Michael Burdak, Alan Wilson, Ronald Ike, Michael Connolly, Steve Biella, Jim McKenzie, Charlie Brown, Dylan Angle, Johnny Kinsey, Robert Yerke, Bill Piotr, Darren King, Thor Wiegman, Todd Bowers, Kevin Ivey, John Clark, Bill Collins, Jeff Zimmerman, Tony Coberly, Roger, oh, excuse me, Roger Pereira, Jeffrey Boris, Michael Carey, Steve Hepler, and Michael Jobling. For Facebook, we have David Filmer. For Twitter, we have at greet underscore 64415, at VK3ZZK underscore HK60, at VE1XE, at Muzz for now, and at PRZEMEK3940-8192. For YouTube, we have Nelly, Tom Mihilik, Tim. It's hot in here. Yeah. <laughs> Tim Stanton and Ray Ettinger, and nobody joined us on the mailing list, and no one joined us for merch, or nobody bought anything, so no one joined us for merchandise sales. <laughs> yeah, apparently so. <laughs> no joiners for the uh, sales of merchandise. All right, very good. Well, thank you to all of our supporters, and thank you especially to all of our listeners. We appreciate every one of you, and that's why we keep doing this from week to week. And we will, of course, have an episode, the 40th installment of The Weekender, right before the weekend. So you can find out about all the stuff you can do over the next couple of weekends. Mm -hmm. So with that, we will go ahead and wrap up episode number 320 of Linux in the Ham Shack. And we'll talk to you all again very soon. I'm Russ, K5TUX. I'm Cheryl, W5MOO. And I'm Bill, NE4RD73.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Linux in the Hamshack. LHS is a community-sponsored podcast. The live show is recorded every Monday night at 8pm Central Time, plus or minus QRL. Connect to the live stream at url.bcts.info stroke LHS live. Our website is located at lhspodcast.info. You can support the podcast by visiting the LHS Patreon page at patreon.com stroke LHS podcast or by using the contribute link on the homepage. Get in touch via social media. We have a presence on Discord, Facebook, IRC, Twitter and YouTube. Our IRC channel is hash LHS podcast on the Freenode network and the Discord invite link is url.bcts.info stroke discord. You can also drop us an email at info at lhspodcast.info or leave us a voicemail at 1-909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1-909-547-7469. Visit the online LHS merchandise store at shop.lhspodcast.info for fun and fashionable show-themed merchandise. Become an ambassador and represent LHS at a local Linux convention or handfest. Email ambassadors at lhspodcast.info for more information or visit the homepage for details. Until next time, remember to always heed your hedonism. Shack and the Linux in the Hamshack logo are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License.